I feel like that's a almost like a rite of passage for writers because that definitely happened to me as a kid. Did you? Oh, really? Yeah, like that. that it did like, happen. Yeah, a yeah. history teacher accused me of plagiarism in grade ten, and I yeah. carry that bitterness to, to today. Well, it's right. It's it's bitter, but at least for me, it's also like it's a, a little bit of a point of pride, right? Because because there's, there's a it's an, in retrospect, like, there's an obvious reason that you got accused of plagiarism. Presumably, it's like well, because it's you're not supposed to be this good at this. Like, yeah, you seem to have a better attitude about it than I do. You should, like, I, no, you should, you should take it as a, yeah, that history teacher might be a, a doofus, but you should take it as a, it is a compliment, unquestionably. Yeah, oh, I, I like that. Buckley-Smith, and you are listening to Slee Rickets. This week, I have a very special guest for you. My guest is Shashi Bhatt, author of The Family Took Shape, and now the new novel, The Most Precious Substance on Earth, just out in Canada uh, from McClelland and Stewart, and soon to be out in the U.S., but you can, if you're sneaky, order it online through a Canadian bookstore. It's a it's really fun conversation that, uh, with Shashi. We talk about her new book. We talk about the MFA program we both attended. We talk about reality television and Elizabeth Bishop's In the Waiting Room and when it's okay to deliberately insert historical errors into your novel, uh, as well as why Toastmasters is like Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, she is a, a an absolute delight, and is, it's a lot, it's a good long interview, so that's going to be the whole show this week. Thank you to all of you for listening, and as always for all of you who have rated the show, reviewed the show, uh, shared the show amongst your friends, please do, when you have a chance, go to Apple Podcasts and give us five stars. It is a big help. And as always, please do write to sleericketts at gmail.com. I got a fair amount of correspondence this week. I'm not going to get into it right now, but uh, I also got my first, uh, you know, really, um, well, not my first. I got, I, I got, a, I got a, a good provocative email really arguing, really taking issue with some things I said in a really smart way. So uh, that'll that's going to be something I'm going to wait and get into next week. But for now, let's get to Shashi Bhatt and her new book, The Most Precious Substance on Earth. I have seen it in a couple of arcs that my editors sent me, but I don't know if it's like every, like I don't know if everyone does it or if maybe it's thing my editor likes to do okay um yeah I think she might have like she suggested that I like I, she gave me like a direction to go in because another one of the letters I read was aimed specifically at booksellers and so yeah I'm not really sure <laughs> would you mind just reading for us the first two paragraphs so people have some sense of this so this came with the advanced copy I don't know if this is going to appear in any form with like copies people buy commercially no i think it's just for like reviewers and booksellers oh okay so this is, this is a special uh, peek behind the curtain then 
Yeah. Do you do you have do you have yeah, a it's copy a, of it? It's a little embarrassing. I feel like, but yeah. No, it's well, it's yeah, just yeah, it's it's very uh, it's very you know human and inviting and personal. You know. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Sure. I can read it. So just the first couple of paragraphs. It just says, "Dear reader," at the top. Yeah. Dear reader, this book began fourteen years ago as a bit of an experiment. I wanted to write something different from the series pieces I had been writing for my MFA classes, something truer to my own voice. At the time, I had a modestly popular blog that I updated about seven times a day. One day, a classmate said to me, you should write a story in your blog voice. So I set out to write a piece with a sense of humor and unabashed pop culture references, one that was goofy and surprising, but that also had emotional range. Even then, I knew it was a kind of horror story, too, about the instant when everything changes for the worse. I am inspired by narratives that can pick you up and then crush you, like ZZ Packer's Brownies or Lauren Groff's The Wind. I also love the awkward realism of TV shows about teenagers, like Degrassi or Ready or Not or Pen15, which capture the mix of silly and devastating experiences that real teenagers have every day. I wanted to combine all of this into a story that would make someone laugh and then leave them with a hollow in their stomach. That story became the first chapter of this book. Thank you so much. And, that, and I know of some of those works that are mentioned. The only one I think I've seen uh, at Joanna's encouragement, uh, we watched Pen15 together, which is oh, nice. <laughs> really funny and really uh it reminds me of the first office and like the how painful it is at times to watch so just it's a yeah. depiction it's a depiction of like middle school where the the adult women who play the leads are surrounded otherwise by like age appropriate actors so it's it's two like women in their 30s and then a and then a bunch of like 12 year old kids but it's, yeah. it's very like funny and painful uh, to watch. and the women are playing 12 year olds right yeah they they are playing themselves at, at you know in middle school uh yeah which i think the other two references are like obscure canadian tv shows well degrassi is not so obscure but ready or not yeah De degrassi TV. i've heard of definitely <laughs> ready or not I've, I've not yeah so i i'll say we so we went to different halves of the same mfa program uh back a million years ago in baltimore and I, my recollection, uh, though I think I heard about it only too late, was that there was a great deal of quiet excitement from people who devoured your blog. Uh, <laughs> but then I think like it was sort of like it was there was a fear that like it was a it was like supposed to be a separate thing. That, and I think this was like it, it felt like a, a little bit of an inside look, but it was very like a very entertaining uh, voice in that blog. So I don't remember that at all. <laughs> no, no, no. I, well, but I also remember like it wasn't around you. It was like it was like quite like quietly uh, because there was. I think you 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 were so because you were you're also in person. You were you're uh, very soft spoken and like unassuming. And so it was. I think that that added to it. And I think people liked getting a, a little bit of a. A more personal view through your blog, but this you you had a how did you think about this at the time? Um, how did because do, do have you kept it up or do you still do it? I, I I feel like at some point it got shut down and then I was it was like I was too late. I don't yeah, know if that was I stopped blogging. Like it's kind of slowed down um, once I started teaching because all of a sudden like my life felt more public and I didn't want students reading it and. I think I kind of like grew up over the course of writing the blog and 
like I started writing it in undergrad when I was like you know 19 and everyone had a blog and it was pretty personal because no one was reading it and then more people started reading it and like I actually reread some entries from it recently like I have it all like archived on my computer and I hadn't read it in years and I realized now that it was almost like I was doing a bit like the voice of the blog was it was like really light. And I remember there were times when I was like going through very difficult things in my life. But when you read the blog, it would be just like, like fun and funny. And, and uh, yeah, like very different from the stuff that I was writing in the classroom too. And I think that voice worked well for writing a high school student too, like, cause the book starts when she's 14. Um, like the funny thing is like, I felt like in, when I was that age in the MFA program, I felt like a lot of pressure to write something literary. Uh, and especially like, I well, so I don't know, a book I think about a lot is this book by a Canadian writer called Curry. Uh, his name is Nabin Rathnam. And it's a long essay about the like pressures or expectations placed on writers from the South Asian diaspora to like fit into this category and write about like, food and curry and Indian mythology. And I think I was writing a lot of that kind of thing in grad school, like that's what my first book is. Um, whereas this book is much more what I want to write. Like I, I think I said in this letter that it feels truer to my own voice because it has a lot of pop culture references and jokes. And um, I, I mean, I also like work that has tonal range. So I think that's what I was going for in the book too, to kind of sneak up on the reader with a like gut punch ending. Yeah, no, that, that I hadn't thought about that because I, I did enjoy, I, I mean, I enjoyed both of your books and they both have like a, there's sort of, it's a, it's a kind of a close, I can't remember if the first book, is it first person or is it just close third? I'm a close third. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, the first uh, book, which is really good is uh, The Family Took Shape and especially the the title chapter is just a, I think an absolute gem, but it, yeah, it, it is not as, I think like the way I put it to, to Brian was that like, this book is, it also has those sort of like, you know, it's ch chapter slash story structure and it follows kind of closely this one young woman's development, but it is, mm -hmm. it's much snappier and more propulsive and just sort of delicious. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. The main character and her family in this book is also uh, Indian Canadian and the, the, the parents are particularly uh, observant Hindus. Maybe is like part of the difference that you sort of you're getting to see a an Indian Canadian experience or Hindu experience that's not that's not sort of exclusively weighted down or defined by a certain set of expectations. Yeah, um, like the fact that she's uh, like South Asian is just a part of her identity identity and not really the focus of it. Like I think it affects the way she's certainly um, perceived by others. Um, and how she moves through the world. But I think like, the focus of this book is maybe more on her gender than her uh, ethnic identity. You know, the, the, the comparison that came to mind, and I don't know if this will be, uh, uh, it's intended as a, as a compliment because it's a book I greatly love. It may, it may come across the room, but it, it did, it reminded me in some ways of The Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing. Oh, I read that so long ago and yeah. someone else made that comparison too. Part, I mean, part, um, partly it's because it's like semi-standalone chapters that do have a, a sort of a larger arc. Uh, but it's also like, 
Oh, right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's very much about, about being a woman and, and sort of encountering different people treat, treating, you know, it's like a series of, in that one book, it's mostly a series of, I think, romantic relationships, but it all, it, it, it's, it's also, I think it's a, it, it sort of floats like a butterfly sings like a bee. Like it's a very light and a silly and fun book, but it hits pretty hard. You, you mentioned in an early email, the, the more recent public and publishing concern with own voices novels. Would you just say, say a word about that or what that means or how you think about that? Yeah, I don't know if I have anything particularly enlightening to say about own voices, but like, I think it's- Maybe just, would you say a word about what that means for in case somebody might not have heard of that? Oh, sure, yeah. So it's when um, like an author is writing a story where they share um, the same background as the character, like a South Asian writer writing about a South Asian character. Um, is that something that, uh, apart from from just being like, you know, you 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 are a writer who's been writing as you want to write for a long time, and it's only more recently that this is a this is a term, at least that I that I've heard in you know popular uh, com- public conversation, and that maybe people are paying a little more attention to now. Yeah, and I think it's a complicated term because, like, initially the intent, of course, was was a, like a, a helpful, well-meaning one. Um, saying that like this writer shares a background and identity with this character. But I mean, now it's been revealed to be a bit problematic and potentially simplistic or too broad. Um, like I know there have been cases where, um, I, I can't remember her name, but the author who wrote the book that that Netflix movie Love, Simon was based on where the characters are gay and um, the author received a lot of criticism and harassment because people perceived her to be a heterosexual woman when in fact she just hadn't come out as bisexual um, and then she was forced to do so. Um, which makes me think about the situations where like what if you're writing about a character with an invisible disability and you have a disability like then do you have to disclose it to prove that you're capable of writing this story and same with sexual assault right like should you have to disclose it to to say that you can write this story. Right. Yeah, so it, I mean, again, I think it is like a well-meaning um, hashtag or label, but maybe it would be better to put language on the books that the authors use to identify themselves rather than using a, like a broad label like that. Yeah, there's a, there's a pretty good, if I remember, Caitlin Greenidge, is that her name? Think that's her name in the in New York or in the New York Times. She had a pretty good uh, article a while ago about kind of the the distinction between like people saying, "Oh, I'm, uh, what are you allowed to write?" And she's the distinction she's making mm-hmm. between like well, it's not it's not about what you're allowed to write. You're allowed to write whatever you want. The question is like, is there how much does it matter that you get it right? And that maybe yeah. it should matter a little more that you bother to get it right, whatever you, yeah, wherever you're you're coming from. Because I've I've heard other complaints about that some from uh, from writers who would purportedly have been promoted by the, kind of the focus on own voices books. I've I've heard some complaints that they then feel obliged to write a certain kind of book. Oh, for sure. Yeah, this is actually something we talk about in my department um, in terms of teaching, because sometimes you get students who don't like they've never heard the term cultural appropriation and they don't know, (laughs) you know, 
what they're quote allowed to do. But I think I think like you shouldn't go into the classroom and say you can't write this because because that um, I think the reaction to that would just be defensiveness. Um, but maybe it's to like encourage them to think about how this story will be received. Um, and like, yeah, if you're gonna do it, do it right. I was actually surprised to hear you say that this came from your blog writing because what I would at least associate with that kind of writing is a, you know, a dominating narrative voice that sort of s sweeps you up in its, in its opinions and its perspective. There's definitely a lot of that. There's definitely a lot of kind of wisecracking perspective and the, the, the narrator is very wry. But, but then I think one of the other things I really enjoyed about the book was that though it is all in Nina's perspective and in her voice, it feels like a book in which, it feels like a book populated by real people. Joanna always gives me grief for being a dialogue snob. Um, and the dialogue in this book reminded me of uh, Amy Hempel's dialogue, which is, I think she's one of the very best, right? Like a lot of the writers I really admire, uh, Donna Tartt, or, or Colson Whitehead, Jonathan Franzen, very, I have very boring mainstream taste in that sense. Like they're, I, I love their writing. They're not great dialogue writers. Um, Amy Hempel, I think, is sometimes not, like her structures are not always great. I think like your, your, your chapters and stories have a little more meat in structure than, than some of her, sorry, obviously she's great when she's great. Sometimes she's gonna be a little flimsy, but her dialogue I think is exquisite. And um, and I think that's true here for yours as well. And it's not even so much like the, the it's not the phrasing so much as like the, I think of the framing. Like it's very apparent that your characters are speaking from their own perspectives like it's not I think sometimes like there are different kinds of bad dialogue sometimes bad dialogue is stilted but sometimes it just all feels like it's being written from the same psychological perspective yeah and in yours it very much feels like the characters are speaking at like slight cross purposes the way that real people do oh thanks yeah I, I mean I love writing dialogue and I love taking on other people's voices, I think. This is funny, it's making me think of, um, so I listened to casting tapes for the audiobook recently. Oh shit, oh God. <laughs> which is interesting because it's yeah. in the first person and as you're saying, it also includes a lot of voices, including the voices of her parents and some other characters who have accents, which the writer right. doesn't. Yeah. And so like I asked the when I had the first meeting with the audiobook director and producer, I asked them, like, are they gonna do accents? How is this right. gonna be handled? Um and they were they were great about it. Like they said, we will cast a South Asian actress, and they did. Um and like for the audition, they chose a couple of excerpts for them to read, and they chose a section that had the parents' dialogue in it so I could kind of hear how that landed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because I don't listen to a lot of I don't think I've ever listened to an audiobook, so I didn't really know how that was done. <laughs> Did you did you feel like you heard some good possibilities for the for the narrative for the reader? 
Yes, I. So, well, I don't. Like, I don't want to get you. I don't know if I don't want to get you in trouble on the record or. Oh no! Yeah. Like I mean, they're professionals. They know what they're doing. And there was there was one like they let me pick um, my favorite, which was great. But it is like so when I'm writing, I read everything aloud. Like I've probably read the whole book aloud myself like three times. I've done public readings of it, and it's very much like it's a voice that's been in my head for a decade. And then to hear someone else reading it. Um, it's jarring and um, like it has jokes in it and delivery of jokes is so important. And I think my sense of humor is quite dry. And like in some of the audition tapes, I could hear like this over delivery of the humor. So I gave them a lot of notes. (laughs) Hopefully I wasn't obnoxious about it. Um, And pacing too, like there's some sections I wrote to have momentum and when I read them aloud, I read them very quickly and I noticed, and probably you have to do this as an audiobook reader, right, but they would like slow those sections down and I was like, ah, like I want this to move. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah, your your humor especially is so, I, I think of it as being, it's not British because you're not British, but it has some of that same (laughs) Like the in like the way actors put it, they'd say like they they would say like throw it away. Yeah, like, I should also say that when they did the auditions, they hadn't read the whole book. Like they're just given these excerpts, so they probably don't really know what the tone is going right. into. Yeah. It. And I, f- I feel I feel confident that none of those a- actresses will ever hear actors will ever hear this. But we yeah we wish nothing <laughs> wish you nothing but the best and and break a light break a light to to all of you. I I was gonna um see if I could get you to read a little bit. I don't, you know, there are a couple of passages I looked at and then I know you you have your own experience. Is there something you'd like to read or what's your, how would you like to do that? I just want to get some of it in the, in the uh, listener's ears. Yeah, one of my go-tos is the beginning of the Toastmasters chapter. Yeah, uh, no, that'd be great. Uh, the chapter title is Good Enough Never Is and the page number is 151. In the photos on the Toastmasters website, everybody wears a blazer and smiles. They run international conferences and give emotionally devastating wedding toasts. They deliver eulogies and everybody cheers, encore, encore. Their charisma is electric. Their handshakes are earthquakes. Confidence makes their skin shine. They've mastered the most daunting challenge of all, speaking while being judged by others. According to the stats I looked up before my first meeting, If you offer the average person the choice between giving a five minute speech to their peers or sitting in a dark confined space full of Lovecraftian arachnids, they'll choose the arachnids. Public speaking is scarier than monsters. It's scarier than death. At the Toastmasters meeting, everybody is dressed like a slob and I feel dumb for wearing a blazer, even though I'm only wearing it because I've come straight from work. I hang the blazer over the back of my chair We're in a rented over air conditioned classroom at Dalhousie. Of the window, university students are hunchbacks with backpacks against a red sunset, gripping double doubles, hurrying away. As people file into the classroom, they smile at me, help themselves to styrofoam cups of water and store-bought oatmeal cookies, then sit around the horseshoe of tables. The regulars exchange pleasantries, some in thick accents. A cloud of earnestness puffs up above the group like cigarette smoke. First time here, asks a guy as he slides into the chair next to me. I nod. Don't be nervous, he says, patting my bare shoulder with a damp hand. He introduces himself as Dave. He's maybe 10 years older than me, in his 40s, with small, close-set eyes. 
His strong jaw and gray buzz cut combined with his paunch give him the look of an aging football coach. His muscular legs are spread so wide apart that one of them takes up the space where my legs should go, so I keep mine tucked under my chair. You've been doing this for a while then, I ask. Oh, ages and ages. Public speaking has always been something I'm good at. And why did you join Toastmasters? Well, I'm very competitive. He tilts his chair back and balances on its uh, two back legs. Planning to take this to the next level, you know, the competition circuit. Of course, I say, though I can't imagine him pictured on the Toastmasters website. So how nervous are you, he asks. He leans in as though he's telling me a secret, his breath acrid. I'm a teacher, so I'm used to speaking in front of a group. I'd like to get better at it though, cut down on the ums and ahs, figure out what my weaknesses are. Most of the people gathered are seated now. A woman approaches the classroom door. Her walk is a shuffle, tennis shoes quiet on the linoleum. She's slight in a billowy aubergine caftan over black tights and her loose black ponytail swings behind her. Her eyes are steely, she grasps the door jamb. See that girl over there? Dave lowers his voice only slightly, pointing at the door with zero subtlety. I know her, she's a regular too, but she never comes inside. Every week she comes right up to the door but doesn't have the balls to come in. So she just watches, you mean? Well, we close the door before the meeting starts. One day she'll make it inside. He laughs like she, he's certain she'll never make it. I think for a moment. On Reddit, I read about a guy whose stage fright was so intense he had his doctor prescribe Valium just so he could attend the Toastmasters meetings. It must have worked. I make my face earnest. He attended for years and years and ended up placing third in the international contest. Now he's a stand-up comic. Interesting, says Dave. And that man's name is Conan O'Brien. Wow, really? Asks Dave. No, I say, not really. Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, th thank you so much. And that, that character, Dave, is, uh, is one of the uh, more colorful and memorable, poorly behaved men in the book. But part of what I really appreciate about Dave is that he's, that a lot of his awfulness is not of the totally obvious variety, that it's kind of a subtle bullying um, that, re again, like it just it rings really true. I was really curious about this because it's, um, so Toastmasters comes up in the book and it it sticks around a little bit in a way that I, I expected it to be kind of a one-off, but it it does, but it remains oddly a part of Nina's life in a way that feels like, um, like I think I mentioned in another episode that, that there's sort of, it feels like every other book or TV show or movie I, I encounter there's a character who goes to a 12-step program. And this sort of has in some ways the the place of that trope in the yeah. book, but it's but it is it does a very different thing. And it it both has I don't did you ever see the um the show The Americans about the Russian spies? So in that, I was one of the things I sort of liked about that show was that they used the self-help, the culty self-help group est mm -hmm. as something that the the the, the husband character goes to and they make fun of it. And it clearly seems like sort of bullshitty, but then it also does in some genuine ways help him. And here as well, it seems like all of the ways in which Toastmasters and the people in it are ridiculous are very apparent. And it is very, like the treatment is very tongue in cheek. And, you know, Nina approaches it as she seems to approach almost everything in her life with a little bit of a, 
you know, a jaded eye uh, mm -hmm. as almost like as, as like potential blog material. But also it is like she, it, at the same time, she takes it seriously and it does seem to yeah. really help her. Yeah, like I think she views it with this ironic distance, but you're right, like she takes it so seriously, like to the point of self-harm because she's not <laughs> performing these speeches in the, the way that she wants to. Um, to. I should say, I've never been to a Toastmasters meeting. <laughs> I, had to, I was gonna um, ask, yeah. Yeah, I read a whole lot of Toastmasters newsletters and I did take some kind of like youth group public speaking class as a teenager, like a, me and a bunch of Indian teenagers taking a public speaking class. So I, I borrowed a little bit of the dialogue. Like, I think I put the line in there where the instructor or the leader says, you're like a block of wood trapped in a river. Maybe I didn't put that in the book, but I remember just like joking Something. about that for months as a teenager. <laughs> Yeah, no, which is like, there is like a lot of um, support groups or self-help groups, there is a lot of corny, hackneyed, boilerplate kind of proverbial wisdom that is both laughable and sort of true at the same time. Yeah, and oh, actually what I was thinking about when you, because I think the comparison to AA meetings and TV shows is really apt because like the reason I chose Toastmasters was, I mean, partly it's a book about silence and like, why not put in a public speaking group? But also like, I wanted to give myself this challenge of having multiple characters in a scene of dialogue and having them each acting out of insecurity and clashing against each other uh, in different ways. And yeah, Toastmasters just seems so ripe for that. Some chapters leap ahead several years and some follow almost immediately on the heels of the previous one. There's a little bit of a, of a, a jump ahead to this chapter mute where Nina is in a, an MFA program and she goes, I mean, it is not named, but it feels pretty unmistakably like the one we had. <laughs> Yeah, I should mention too, I think like in the arc that you received, uh, I don't think it does this, but in the final version, the book is divided into part one and part two and part two starts oh. with mute because there is a bit of a- Oh know. yeah, no, that no, that's not in this version. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because there is, a, that is, that may be the biggest temporal gap in the yeah. chapters. Okay, all right. So that, no, that, that makes sense. And there is, and there's a, you know, there's a little bit of a turn in, in Nina's life here. My impression is that she, she because you also, you, you make a mention of, February, but then it's Christmas. So my, my assumption is that she, she sort of, she attends this program for a year and a half or so, or like, yeah. and then, and then goes home and, and drop, drops out formally and, and stays home. There's a really wonderful, you know, tiny little snapshot of a, an academic MFA cocktail party, which is just uh, excruciating <laughs> and totally, totally accurate. Uh, but then the, the kind of the, the, there, you know, a handful of things happen in the chapter, but there's the kind of the frame of it is, or maybe the, the bookends of it, there's a, a, a story that Nina had workshopped, you know, kind of a quiet story about a breakup out in front of the, on a waterfront. And she gets a lot of not necessarily very helpful advice or response from, from her classmates and, and her teachers. They, they mm -hmm. see it. It's, it's sort of, it's too ostentatious that she's, South Asian, whereas, you know, because there's nothing in the, in the story that they, I think they said, one of the characters says, there's, there's nothing that seems to require her to be South Asian. So why is she 
South Asian, yeah. rather than being the the default white. And then also that there's there's so much they they seem to find it all implausible, or it seems like it's it seems made up or something. Whereas we, we find out, of course, at the end that it, it it seems to be more or less a direct memoir, you know, a direct uh, recounting of something that happened to her. But it's a story of a breakup that seems like a pretty wrenching breakup, and it's of a relationship we never hear about. So. Oh yeah, oh, you're asking a really interesting question right. that I'm realizing I addressed in the next, in the final edit of this book, because- um, Oh, there's a, is there an edit after this? There's one last edit because I signed oh, on with okay. my American publisher and then I got oh. like, la- it's very small, but they're mostly in this chapter to address that time oh, jump. And that's okay. why I added the part titles too. But okay. so like, I think in this uh, in this version, she says that story is autobiographical. And in the new version, she says, like, the truth is I've never been to Paris. So it's not, it's not really autobiographical. Um, and like she says, I wanted to write about the kind of relationship that lasts as briefly as a song. Um, so she just wanted to write about short relationships and she turned it into a relationship breakup story when in fact there like was no breakup and it's just about like impermanence of people in her life. Oh yeah. All right. I, I'm really, I'm, I, I now want to read that version because yeah, that's, that's a, (laughs) so was this, was, was that an American editor who was concerned that there was like too many uh, loose ends or was I think it was that the jump was too big. And I think in my head, I was like, I had conceived of it as like two halves of Nina's story because I think the voice changes pretty dramatically from like the first chapter to mute. Um, but so I, but also, you get, I think you, you have the, I think wonderful transition sentence at the very beginning of mute is everyone is drunk. Yeah. Like it conveys a lot of, it conveys a lot of information. It's like, oh, we're, we're at a different phase in life. A lot of other things can happen. There's a different, you know, uh, a lens on this moment because everybody is drunk and there's an everyone to refer to. So it's like, it, it's three words that do a lot of work, I think. Uh, oh, thanks. Yeah. That's such a great observation. <laughs> as a, um, as a, as a, a profoundly self-centered American, it's very entertaining for me because I recognize so much of it uh, from, from Baltimore, but it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty sharp observation of writing programs that also feels very rooted in, in Nina's character. I'm yeah, I'm now, all right, I'm like curious about this new version and this uh, this new editor. Though again, again, I, I, uh, for the record, Shashi has nothing but good things to say about all of her editors, and you know, I, I don't want to I don't want to get you in oh. any trouble. No, I should also say that like my workshop experience was not like Nina's. Like it's obviously a skewed and satirical version yeah. of that, and it's very heightened. And yeah, I played up some of the dramatic stuff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mentioned the 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 third paragraph of that letter uh, that, Which, you, yeah. that you wrote, um, and the the thing that you focus on there is I don't need to read the whole thing right this second, but um, you you said something I was surprised by, but it but it made sense once I once I read it, which is that you started out you wanted to write in the voice of your blogger with that same touch, that same feel to it but you started out writing individual stories and it was only over time that you recognized that they, they all sort of belong. They were all in the first person. They were all in the uh, uh, present tense. And you, you, it was over time that you began to find that they were all the same 
woman at different moments in her life, it did clarify for me, I think something I'd been chewing over, which is the way plot works in this novel, which is a really, it's an unusual. So I think the, the, um, the typical distinction between you know, a novel and a novel in stories. And there are, I would say like, there are a lot of novels and stories that disguise themselves as novels, as novels. Like um, I read The Glass Hotel. Uh, oh yeah, oh, I haven't one, read that yet. It's good, it's smart. I also have like a weird obsession with uh, Bernie Madoff and I've read all the stuff about him. So it's like, from that perspective, it's also like very fun and great, you know, and like a lot of things that are weirdly, you know, accurate from that. It's a, it's a good, weird novel and it is i think it's also at least part of it is takes place in canada i think that the hotel oh yeah the writer's canadian her first okay, book yeah, is station yeah. 11 which all right yeah 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 okay right because <laughs> yeah, because there's a bunch of it that's in new york but then there's there's a part of it that's also in canada um yeah it's it's worth it's worth reading but it's totally a it's totally a novel in stories like it's it's there oh, you know, okay. it, it jumps back and forth through time but it very much I, I would, I mean, that's what, that's how I, I see it as a novel in stories, but, um, but like the, 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 the major distinction there is that a, as I understand it, is that, you know, one of the, the episodic versus the uh, sequential novel. And this, you know, th this book is sequential. Things happen in order, but often in novels and stories, every individual chapter sort of can stand on its own. And it's mostly a sort of a, a thematic, connection or a, you know, you get a, a, a Spoon River anthology sort of web of characters in the same world. Um, mm -hmm. This one, there is some direct causation from chapter to chapter. She, you know, drops out, she has to come home, she has to get a job. Uh, but the, it, it's, all, you know, mostly it's episodic, but at the same time, it's not really fair to say that the, that there's not a forward rolling significance to like the the arrow of time has meaning here and i think the difference as i started to identify and you can maybe correct me on this or clarify is that it's not an external causation but an internal one yeah and i guess i have a couple things to say about structure and like why i chose it i mean partly i just started writing it as short stories and it all came together as i realized what i really wanted to write about was silence and like silence as a subject is just so interesting to me um but in terms of structure like one i just love the shape of a short story like i love their potential to highlight the narrative arc and that um like the way you can just like like kick the reader in the stomach with an ending. Um, but then I also like, I mean, Nina is a character who watches a hell of a lot of television. And I think the structure of this book is similar to a season of television. It's like each story is like an episode. It has its own mini arc, but then there's also the larger arc. And I mean, I like the pleasure of following a character over time. That's probably why I like, prefer television to movies and probably for that reason, because we see them develop. Um, so I thought that structure was just fitting for a book with it. There's so many television yeah right no that 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 makes sense and you um yeah you you she, she draws in uh television there's a there's a really wonderful moment um i think maybe my like my two my two favorite chapter stories are probably you are loved by me and and facsimile i think um and is it oh, is really it, yeah i think oh where is it i have it dog-eared somewhere yeah it's in facsimile um she's she uh 
she's watching the bachelor she says the bachelor cuts to commercial the screen turns black reflecting my face i'm a contestant i smile <laughs> with the fakest smile i can muster blue frosting in my teeth and it's that that saint like she's making fun of it she's making fun of herself but she also means it mm-hmm. it's and that's it seems like a lot of her interaction with culture it has that like there's a whole chapter about her and her friend being goths and they yeah. like in in the same way like everything is everything is both facetious and sincere mm-hmm. uh, which is a real like that's a that's a quality that is really native to tv uh and it seems yeah, like that's almost like putting it to yeah. sorry almost go ahead to the 90s i mean <laughs> yeah, oh, <laughs> like shit, that, yeah. that jadedness and hilarity and I, maybe i'm just saying that because i watched the woodstock 99 documentary yesterday oh, I, haven't, I, I haven't i haven't i haven't i don't remember any of the chaos of that I don't, I mean, I don't, I just remember that it, that it happened and it, it didn't occur to me that it was a big, what, how was that, by the way, how, how was the documentary? What was, what should we know about Woodstock 99 that I, I clearly don't remember? Uh, it's both like so interesting and so hard to watch, but I guess the focus is on toxic masculinity um, and like how the anger of that time led to like some of the anger of today in the United States. And, but, oh my gosh, like the, the ending of it is, is, is hard to watch. Like I kind of wish I could unsee some portions of it. I don't know how much I should say, but yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah, no, I, 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 I remember there being chaos and ugliness, but I don't, it, I, it didn't, it didn't register. Cause I think that, yeah, like I think any any like cultural memory from that year is just completely obliterated and replaced by um, by Columbine and and by record. Oh yeah, and you know when well, so it ends with like people in the audience setting fire to things with the candles they were given for a candlelight vigil for Columbine. Like oh, oh Jesus, my God. and it must have been what like four months after Columbine because it was because it was a summer or was it. Yeah. Okay. Right. Columbine summer. was April. Yeah. So right. Yeah. Shit. Okay. And there is, and, and Columbine does come up in, uh, in this book, and it the again, like as with so much, it in that same in that same like it, Columbine was a, among other things, as well as being like a horrible loss of life and the strange turning point in American gun culture. Like among other things, it Columbine was a fucking television event. And it has yeah. some of that quality here. Yeah, and I think like wh- I, I, I think like the way I wrote the section about Columbine, which takes place in the '90s, is like Nina buys. Well, she both questions and buys into the media depiction of it because she's clearly a Dylan Klebold sympathizer. <laughs> yeah. Um, who is who is yeah, the more the more human of the two, if I recall? Like Eric Harris was like the, the stone cold psychopath, and, and Dylan Claybold was a little bit of the like the the follower. Yeah, um, that's what it seems like. Without saying too much about the events in the novel, there there's a there's a really important event that takes place very early on, and <laughs> my impression as I was first reading it. But there's a strange quality to, like if I were to think of the the external plot of the book, it's almost as if it has no effect. And then there are like later events when she drops out of the MFA or there, where you know my thought initially was like, well, what? Well, that didn't seem like that big a deal either. But it, I think a lot of the events later that are externally causes, they, they, they change things factually in her life are 
internally their effects that we see, like we, we see these earlier events in her life and the, the, the kind of the, really the tragic loss of this friendship it's, they're not external dominoes falling like in like the Iliad, but they are, uh, they change who Nina is. And so they make, it makes a difference in how she responds to things later on. I have so much I could say in response please, to that. Please, please do. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm rambling. So you t- you know more than I do. You tell me, yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because like a big decision I made and I went back and forth in revising this was whether to address that big incident right away or later on in the book. Like how, how big a part of her story should it be? Because um, it's a big part of who she is as a human being. But like, I didn't think it was something that should be in every chapter. Um, and like, I guess like, like what I wanted to write about was this simmering trauma and how it affects her without her even acknowledging it. Um, and I think like, like in thinking about how silence works in the book, like I think she's pushed into silence, but it's also uh, like a way of her maintaining control and protecting herself. It's like, it allows her to define her own narrative. Um, But then like at the end of the book, um, like without spoiling anything, her her secret is exposed in a kind of small and cruel way. And I wanted her arc to be um, like, at that point in the book, she's like, everything has been taken away from her. And she has this one thing and it's silence or her secret. And then even that is taken from her. Um, and I wanted it to feel like a violation, but just of a different sort than what she's already experienced. Um, and I was also thinking about like, so the book is in like first person present tense, uh, which is like a weird, like stressful choice when you're writing it because you feel like you're in it. Um, and there's like, there's a line late in the book where she mentions a therapist telling her to live in the present, which I feel like people say all the time now, but like when you have this terrible trauma in your past, like what does it mean to live in the present? And Nina is always in the present. Like she's totally suppressing the past. It's, she's, she's in denial about it the whole time until she's forced to confront it at the end of the book. So it made sense to me to not have her be like constantly referring back to that incident. And I also think I wanted her character to be shaped, not just by like, she's not defined just by that one thing, but also by all of these like small indignities that she faces um, that accumulate over the, the course of her story. No, I mean, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I had thought I'd forgotten about the therapist line about living in the present. And it is a really funny effect that the book has when it's, it's all in the present tense and it is the same character speaking in the first person throughout, but partly because these chapters are sort of standalone and they sometimes have little breaks, you know, temporal breaks between them. There is an odd sense in which it feels like they're all, they're all always happening like you never get to escape like the um uh one of the reasons i really love uh, harold penter and is and he's so but he's also so painful to watch <laughs> is that there's no catharsis like there there's trauma and there's like tragedy but there's no release 
Yeah, that's the great thing about a short story too, right? Like you leave the reader in that discomfort. I remember I had a professor in undergrad who was always saying like, think about what you want the reader to feel in the white, like that white space when the story is finished that exists at the bottom of the page. And I'm always thinking about that. Like, I just love to, to leave that feeling in your stomach when the story ends. And I think in this book, like the effect of having it be a series of stories is just like prompting that feeling again and again, and it never really dissipates. Right. Yeah. Cause you, you, if it's a short story, if it's a, if it's a, if it's a single short story, you leave and you have that, that, you know, feeling of the, the space and the white and you, you have to sort of do the, it's like my brother is lactose intolerant. So he has to, um, my understanding at least, which is probably not scientific is that he, he drinks lactate, which is like pre-digested milk. And I feel like, <laughs> you know, like when you like a, a short story is like, none of the, you know, none of the digestion has been done. So like you have to sort of burn through it yourself. And the, the thing with, that happens here is that you, that happens every chapter. So that like, you, yeah. there's no catharsis for you. Like in a way, by not resolving it, by not having, um, like one of the, the, the angriest I, I ever saw, like a crowd of people at a, at a theater was after, during the talkback session, uh, after a play, that I'd been working on with some people where there were the, the, the play had no, there was like a big crime that took place in the play. And at the end, there's no, no one is brought to justice and people just <laughs> got furious about it. It's like, none of it had really happened. But like people get so, it's so difficult to swallow. It's like, if you go, if you so see it a doc- just like real life and they got angry about that. <laughs> Right, where like if you saw, I don't know if you, uh, in college when we were going to see Capturing the Freedmans uh, and and there's a there's just you leave with this great sense of like a very personal and specific injustice that just isn't you just, doesn't get metabolized at all. So you just have to it just sits in your stomach, and that does. That's a horrifying documentary, right? Oh God, it's horrifying okay, in so yeah. many different ways. Like it's, I was thinking of there's thing. <laughs> there's like there are no heroes, only victims. Um, yeah, it's hard, like everybody. Yeah, it's hard. It's a horrible. Yeah, it's it's very skillfully done, and there's, clearly the guy knows what he's doing because you leave wanting to like write a letter to your congressman. But, um, but yeah, like, I mean, that's part of what I think this book does so well is that it is, it is so uh, light and, and fun and in some ways blog-like throughout, but that there is that kind of accruing load of, uh, you know, material that doesn't, that you don't digest for us. <laughs> we have to just live with uh, as we, as we go through it. Among other things, it's a book that spans what, 20 years? What is it? What's the? Yeah, it's about 20 years. So it's, it starts in the mid 90s, is that right? Yeah, like the late 90s, 97 Okay, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, it ends before the pandemic because I didn't want to work the pandemic into it. Right, which going, I mean, you imagine going forward, like that's like, going to be a huge ch- choice that every novel has to make. Every book has, yeah, because this originally ended in 2021 and I was like, wouldn't she be teaching online? Like it was a whole thing that I had to think about. So I had to make the timeline a little blurrier to address that. Among other things, it is uh, in part a period piece, though it's, you know, we've we've lived through all of this time and, and lived through it as like conscious enough creatures that we remember it okay it is it, it has to be responsible to some extent to an historical reality which is different in 1997 than in 20 19 whenever whenever it ends 
uh, in the in the not quite uh, now. Um, so you talked a little bit about just sort of having to having to research, uh, you know, things, little quirks of the historical quirks of the '90s or cultural things. What you know, what because uh, our memories blur things. You know, was that TV show on at the time? Was the snack food around then? Um, yeah, and because originally I had written it as short stories, and they weren't like placed in chronological order. So I had to move some chapters in time, and then that like once I put put it into a novel order, and that introduced some anachronisms that I then had to go back and like fact check and address. Like this is just a, like a technical problem you have to face as a writer, but then you also faced a little bit of like a, a philosophical question about this. Yeah, because there were so many times when, especially because like I included so many pop culture references and like they're so fixed in time. And I liked a lot of them. Like I had included them for either a thematic resonance or like sometimes for a joke. Um, and then like with each one, I had to interrogate it and decide like, is this worth its weight? Like, is, is it worth including an error in the book? Um, or should I cut it? Should I replace it with something else? Can I find something that resonates better or at least as well? Uh, so there were a lot of little decisions that I, that I made like that. I have a bunch of examples too, if you want. Yeah, well, and, and you, you, you sent me two little, little essays or articles on this question. I thought the, maybe the simpler of the two was the um, inaccuracies, in, inaccuracies in fiction, when is reshaping fact appropriate? This was by Hannah Waters. Uh, it appeared in the October um, 2011 issue of Scientific American, and she is talking about the, the question of uh, accuracy in science fiction that then ends up sort of focusing on uh, someone Rushdie has an, an essay in his collection, Imaginary Homelands, in which he talks about um, here. I'll, I'll just read, read quickly from the um, article, and then I want to just get your, your thoughts. So this thought came to me, this is from uh, Hannah Waters. This thought came to me as I picked through writer Salman Rushdie's essay collection, Imaginary Homelands, last week. One of his essays, a mere four pages, deals with the very problem of errata in fiction. He begins by recounting several stories told by the narrator of his novel, Midnight's Children, which won the Booker Prize in 1981. The narrator, Salim Sinai, ex explains Hindu mythology to the reader, details of the Bangladesh war, architectural detail in Bombay and train lines through India. The clincher, all of these facts are incorrect, but not by the mistake of the author. Rushdie intentionally introduced these inaccuracies after the fact. She quotes from Rushdie, I went through some trouble to get things wrong. Originally error-free passages had the taint of inaccuracy introduced. Unintentional mistakes were on being discovered, not expunged from the text, but rather emphasized, given more prominence in the story. She talks a little bit about her response to this and then his explanation of it. But I just, I thought I'd get your, you know, why, why did you pick this and, and uh, what about this made you want to talk about it? Uh, well, I thought it was so interesting that he did that, like that he went back and introduced errors into it. And also her reaction is interesting because she describes rage, right? Like she <laughs> yeah. welled up and she gasps aloud. <laughs> yeah, she, like, it was like she was really, really angry about it. Yeah, which made me imagine like a Haligonian reading my book and like gasping at some incorrect store that I put in that didn't exist in the 90s or but like I think readers well I don't know in in the case of my book I was thinking readers with a personal connection to the place might feel indignant hearing a, like a mistake um 
Uh, I think, you have, I think you have a note in your, yeah, in, in your acknowledgments, you say you dedicate the book among other people to Halifax for its utter charm and for forgiving my inaccuracies. Yeah. And the final book has a disclaimer at the front that's like, please forgive my <laughs> bending of time and space and <laughs> all of that. Um, I think the, the Rushdie one is interesting because it says, uh, like when he explains why he made that choice, it says his desire was to make his character as human as possible, and thus he did his best to reproduce the frailty of human memory and experience. Um, and it struck me as like a really good answer to give if someone finds factual inaccuracies in your first person novel, you can just be like, oh, I did that on purpose because memory is fallible. Um, yeah. And maybe like you should just write all historical novels in first person to have that answer handy. Oh yeah, I feel like I feel like the the the, the phrase "unreliable narrator" is almost like a, a license to kill for for contemporary fiction writers. Yeah. Uh, so she she has I think a couple of pretty reasonable conclusions. I mean, she does have a very heightened re response to the to the question, uh, but but it seems like the like she breaks down the. The dimensions of the question and you know it's not as simple as is everything in this book historically accurate or not it like a few different things make a few different things matter like one is is she says the question is not whether it's whether it's permissible per, whether it's permissible to fudge facts but when it's appropriate misrepresenting fact because the research seems too hefty is not acceptable to me but purposefully altering fact for the sake of character development or to bring the reader to another world feels acceptable. So it's, you know, you don't, don't get it wrong out of laziness, uh, but get it wrong yeah. for a reason. I think the challenge there is that like, how does the reader know whether you did it intentionally or not? Cause you had brought up uh, in your email, uh, some of those movies that do like really audacious anachronisms like I was thinking about Romeo and Juliet the Baz Luhrmann movie and it's just yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. so over the top that you know you know he's doing it on purpose for style yeah. um but what about these smaller choices um like you know referencing a tv show because it relates to the gender dynamics of the chapter um like the reader might just see that and say like oh this tv show didn't exist in that year and not not realize that you did it on purpose so it seems like to get yeah. away with it you have to make it obvious that you're that it's intentional. Yeah, and, and I did. I wondered about that with his choice. That if he really wants to convey human frailty, it seems important that the reader know that the things mm. he's saying are not true. And maybe that maybe there's an argument that like a certain kind of reader who's very familiar with these historical events, who, who's very familiar with you know Indian mythology, who's very familiar with these things, would would know right away. And it may be just a a white Western audience who's a little more clueless about it or who takes it as a source of facts. Um, but it does seem like you, you know, whether you're offering a disclaimer as, as it sounds like your book does, or I, I, as I think of Walker Percy's, almost every novel of his has a little note in the front about how he's changed the city's geography. Uh, and oh, I think, yeah. I think, I think Brian did that in one of his novels. Maybe I found a her. Margaret Atwood novel, um, Cat's Eye, where she has a little mm -hmm. disclaimer about how she, I think she says, I rearranged time and space. Um, and it's set in Toronto. And I wish I knew what she changed. I would be so interested yeah. to know like, what she changed and why. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It does seem like, like the, the, how the obviousness of the inaccuracy is important. And then maybe also just like the, the, the scale of the inaccuracy, like, 
<laughs> if you're changing which year a TV show came out by a couple of years, that doesn't doesn't really matter if that's inaccurate. Whereas if you're changing like how you know the British divided India and Pakistan, and like some some <laughs> some inaccuracies true, yeah. are weightier than others. Yeah, it also makes me want to it makes me want to do an experiment where like if I wrote a book in a city that I called Vancouver but just made up all of the details. Like I made up a fictional intersection and a fictional tourist landmark. Like, like there's a, what would be, like I was like, oh, there's a giant orange in the center of town that all the tourists go to visit. And like, then would people reading it Google to see like, oh, what's this giant orange in Vancouver that she's talking about? And would people be angry about that? Or would that just be okay if it's internally consistent? Um, or maybe I, I should just call it something other than Vancouver <laughs> wouldn't be the criticism. I really want you to write that novel now. Do, do you do you know Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities? I know of it. I don't think I know. I haven't read it. It's very, it's very, very short. It's a really cool book. And like, among other things, it's, 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 a, it's a bunch of like very short chapters, each of which is just a description of a city. And they're like wild, crazy, often impossible cities. But, it, but sort of later in the book, because it's Marco Polo um, uh, speaking to Kublai Khan, and the, um, I think it's Kublai Khan, uh, and he, it, he kind of confesses that like actually all of these cities are Venice. Oh, wow, um, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert, but yeah, right, it's yeah. amazing. <laughs> right, yeah, but I think like I would actually, I would love to, I actually, honestly, I think if you, if it was really ostentatious, I think, Van, I don't know what you call Vancouver, Residents, Vancouverites, Van Vancouverans, Vancouver. Yeah, Vancouverites but, sounds right, but I really don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, maybe there's a French plural, but uh, or no, Vancouver's not a French city, is it? Okay, this is my my ignorance of Canada. Never mind, forget that. Uh, uh, but no, I think I think they would love it. Is my guess is if it was really if it was really over the top, I think they would love it. Just, just that would be, it would be fun to write. I mean, I could just set it in the future and claim there was a big change yeah, at some point just you know you could throw in a few ambiguities so that it's not you know is it the future is it the is it the like medieval post-apocalyptic future is it yeah it could be any number of things or has this writer just never been to vancouver yeah well no i mean i think i think you could that's like uh the the line and uh thank you for smoking where it's like they're smoking in space he's like well, th well thank god we invented the such and such i think like a, with a line or two you could like you could you know you could easily make it a um a, a story about somebody who's who's imagining vancouver who wishes you know mm -hmm. yeah so like it, it does seem like i i'm i don't totally sympathize with water's emotional response to this question because i tend to think with rusty like yeah it's a novel fuck it do what you want <laughs> yeah yeah. Like, yeah if you're if you're gonna go to the trouble of putting in a bunch of a bunch of errors get credit for them you know like <laughs> mm, yeah like say it somewhere reveal it somewhere yeah um or make it or make sure they don't matter that much and then you so the other the other article was thornier or i had i had more mixed feelings and kind of it, it's a it's a stranger so it's it's also uh, this is lee edelman on in the waiting room but it's actually uh sort of an abbreviated version or excerpts from a longer essay called the geography of gender elizabeth bishops in the waiting room from contemporary literature uh, in 1985 yeah would you say a word about this i'm not sure totally how to introduce it yeah, well, so I guess uh, just to like 
set up the poem. Um, little girl in a dentist's waiting room reads a National Geographic has an epiphany. Do you um, do you have a copy of it with you? I can Google one. I don't think I have one nearby. Okay, I, I have. I was going to say I'll I'll just read it so people have it in their in their ears, and then we can talk about he he's interested in a very particular question in the poem. But this is so this is in the waiting room by. Elizabeth Bishop, it, it was originally published in Geography 3. I don't know if it was in a magazine before that. I'm not sure. Seems like if, uh, even odds it was in the New Yorker, <laughs> like half of her stuff was. I think it was actually. In the waiting room. In Worcester, Massachusetts, I went with Aunt Consuelo to keep her dentist's appointment and sat and waited for her in the dentist's waiting room. It was winter. It got dark early. The waiting room was full of grown up people arctics and overcoats, lamps and magazines. My aunt was inside what seemed like a long time. And while I waited, I read the National Geographic, I could read, and carefully studied the photographs. The inside of a volcano, black and full of ashes. Then it was spilling over in rivulets of fire. Asa and Martin Johnson dressed in riding breeches, laced boots and pith helmets a dead man slung on a pole. Long pig, the caption said. Babies with pointed heads wound round and round with string. Black naked women with necks wound round and round with wire, like the necks of light bulbs. Their breasts were horrifying. I read it right straight through. I was too shy to stop. And then I looked at the cover, the yellow margins, the date, Suddenly, from inside, came an O oh of pain, Aunt Consuelo's voice. Not very loud or long. I wasn't at all surprised. Even then I knew she was a foolish, timid woman. I might have been embarrassed, but wasn't. What took me completely by surprise was that it was me, my voice, in my mouth. Without thinking at all, I was my foolish aunt. I, we, were falling, falling, our eyes glued to the cover of the National Geographic, February 1918. I said to myself, three days and you will be seven years old. I was saying it to stop the sensation of falling off the round turning world into cold blue black space. But I felt you are an I. You are an Elizabeth. You are one of them. Why should you be one too? I scarcely dared to look to see what it was I was. I gave a sidelong glance. I couldn't look any higher at shadowy gray knees, trousers and skirts and boots and different pairs of hands lying under the lamps. I knew that nothing stranger had ever happened that nothing stranger could ever happen. Why should I be my aunt or me or anyone? What similarities, boots, hands, the family voice I felt in my throat were even the National Geographic and those awful hanging breasts held us all together or made us all just one? How, I didn't know any word for it, how unlikely, how had I come to be here like them, and overhear a cry of pain that could have got loud and worse 
but hadn't. The waiting room was bright and too hot. It was sliding beneath a big black wave, another and another. Then I was back in it. The war was on. Outside in Worcester, Massachusetts were night and slush and cold, and it was still the 5th of February, 1918. So that's In the Waiting Room by Elizabeth Bishop, and that's the, what the Edelman mostly talks about in this, uh, in this excerpt from his essay. Um, so yeah, what, what was it, uh, what, why did you wanna, why did you bring this one in? Yeah, I focused more on the first half of the essay because I think the second half is very complicated and I wasn't sure if I agreed with it. Yeah. Um, the, I guess the, the big, the dramatic reveal in this article is that like this issue of National Geographic February 19 did not contain any such article about Africa. Um, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they're like, she made it up. Um, and, and I guess there, there, are, I mean, there are quotes a few people in here, whether it's calling it an error or saying that like it's intentional and the text itself seems to undermine the stability of the literal. Um, like I know I first came across this article when I guess it was in grad school, we were teaching this poem to our students. Um, and I was just looking up some background and I found this article. I thought it was interesting and I wanted to take it to my students just as some fun information. But I remember also like reading it and wondering like, does this matter? And why does this matter? Um, like to me, it seems a bit trivial and pedantic. Like who cares if there was that article or not? It's like in the poem to make it read realistically. Like, if it just, if it didn't, mention any magazine at all, I think it would, would, would lose that specificity. Um, and I also wondered because they, like someone challenges uh, Bishop on that inaccuracy and her response I thought was really interesting. Like she claims it was a mistake. She says, my memory had confused two 1918 issues of the geographic um, and like it, that article was in a different issue. But then the writer of the article tells us like, actually that issue didn't have an article about it at all. So I wondered why Bishop answered that way. Like, did, did she really believe that she mixed it up or was she just giving them an easy answer? Um, did she do it on purpose? And I, and I still don't, I don't think the article answers that question. The other inaccuracy he points out is that her aunt was not named Consuelo. Right. So that, yeah. like, that was surely deliberate. So she was she was willing to make some inaccuracies deliberately, at least whether or not this was one. I I, I tend to imagine that this is this is a, maybe a, an example of like a like almost a, a sort of like background radiation version of racism where, where my, my guess is that it's 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 not she thought she was she knew it was from the national geographic it wasn't from the march issue as she thought or from the february issue but it it was there are certain kinds of photos that she might have seen anywhere and it was only from national geographic that she that sort of there was an indelible mark that these particular photos of women and children from tribes that seemed to her so you know so so alien and distant that for her they were linked uh in, in irrevocably with the national geographic as a source and i think as with like heart of darkness or curtain of green they're like great pieces of writing but like the the black figures in them are are, are a certain sort of backdrop 
that's how they're they're treated. And so I think I think that's my guess is that like she knew it was National Geographic, but it was almost like that because it was so linked to that title, it almost could have been any issue. Yeah, I could see that. And then she just needed a date to put in there. Yeah, I mean, and the, like that. the specific date. Well, I mean, I don't know that she. Again, my my sympathies are kind of with you, and like I'm not sure how much it matters, and mm-hmm. and like yeah, specific. It needs to be a specific date because the whole point of the book or the story is like it's the specific moment in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and why she answered that way in the Q and A is like I mean, <laughs> it's like uh, what's what was Frost's response to a question like that about uh, stopping by woods on a snowy evening? It was some. Oh, I think he said it. It means what it means, or it means like oh, oh, it means I, I have I have miles to go before I sleep. Like that's what it means. It means exactly what it says. Go fuck yourself. Like which is I kind of feel like <laughs> like what do you, which issue is this was is like not that much better than like where do you get your ideas? Uh, yeah, that's kind know. of how I feel. I would like to have my own Q and A with Elizabeth Bishop. Yeah, and you would, and presumably you would have some some juicier questions than this one. Than this one. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and then he 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 does get into he gets in. I think a little bit. I think my 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 physics teacher who like whenever someone would get was really start to excitedly draw extrapolations from some physics concept, he would say, "Ah, uh, don't don't get happy." And I feel like he, <laughs> he he gets a little happy in toward the end of this this essay. Yeah, talking I about agree. talking about the um the the O as like a, a cosmic manifestation of like woman's role and it is i mean i think the what what reading the 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 poem again after reading his article did bring home to me is that it is there is something pretty i think universally human about this recognition of your own physical self and your mortality and your your existence in time but it is it's it is also maybe significant that that it is a i think i think my guess is that girls tend to come to a, an understanding of their physical existence, at least in some respects earlier than boys do, partly because of things like menstruation and there's a, there's a, and like physical vulnerability. So that it is like, it's not insignificant that she's a girl and that she's specifically horrified by these breasts and that it's yeah. like her, her aunt is a timid woman. So like there, there is something about physically being in your body as a, as a girl. And then, then later as a woman that seems like, yeah, that is, that is pretty important in this poem. Yeah, I think it's when it gets into, is this the line you read? A cry of the female refusal of position in favor of disposition. It seemed like, okay, this yeah, is like yeah. a lot. <laughs> and he, he does that, he says, uh, the, he ends this by saying, uh, it's, uh, the, engage the issues of gender and constraint that are so deeply involved in Bishop's story of O, O, <laughs> which is just like, gee, come on, God, Jesus Christ, guy, don't do that. <laughs> Nobody needed that. <laughs> I wonder uh, if that's where the full article ends, or is there more after? Probably, probably not. But it's, I mean, so it, it's not totally fair to Edelman because I'm sure the full article is a, uh, fills this out a little bit better. But so for you, what was uh how how much did did this question of like accuracy or inaccuracy matter? I think it it ended up mattering a lot. Um, I, I mean, I talked about it with my editor, and one helpful thing she said, my editor is amazing, by the way, but um, she said that I didn't need to be slavish to the details, that it was more about the feeling of the time, which I made sense to me. Um, and I did like in the, in the later revisions, I blurred time a little bit. So there are some fixed events like Columbine, for example, or the millennium. So when you know what the actual year is, but often you don't know the 
exact year. Yeah. Um, and there were a few things I did. Like the big one was I made a timeline and I like, like a spreadsheet where I listed every reference in the book, uh, like uh, movie, television, music, art exhibits, uh, anything that places it in time. And then I fact-checked every one and sent it back and forth to the editor and copy editor, et cetera. Um, I also, like I have friends in Halifax. So sometimes I would take specific Halifax details back to them and ask them like, did this store exist in the nineties or whatever? Um, and then I also, one of my uh, like people who wrote a blurb for me grew up in Halifax. So she was able to give me a couple of, of points on that too. Um, so I like fixed a lot, a lot of the ones that didn't matter. Um, like, let me think of an example. Um, well, like in one chapter, it was in mute. I had a long reference to the TV show, what Catfish the TV show. <laughs> and, oh, which I saw the, the movie and then I vaguely, so what was, what was this? Yeah, um, so the, the the TV show is a spin-off of the movie made by the same guy. I forget his name, Neve. Right. Shulman. Um, but it's just each, every episode is pretty much has the same format where they, um, like someone has an internet romance and then they've never met them in person. You track down the other person and they're almost never who they say they are. Um, but I, the reason I included that in the chapter was just, I think I was just watching the show at the time I wrote the chapter and it had some interesting um, like gender dynamics in it that I thought worked for mute. But then when I put it in the novel, um, it moved from being in like 2013 or something to the mid 2000s and the show didn't start airing until 2012 so it was just two it was like seven years off and that felt like a lot to me and I didn't feel like catfish was important enough of a reference to cling to it um so I ended up replacing it with a reference that I think works better um where I described Marjorie the trash heap from Fraggle Rock right um because there's a whole interesting like powerful woman figure made of garbage <laughs> uh in that but that show um and I think it worked with like there's a in that chapter they go to a Jim Henson exhibit and then there's a Jim Henson yeah, yeah. quote that starts the book so I think it ended up working a little bit better um, there were ones that I ended up keeping, like another television show reference is to the show To Catch a Predator in the first yeah. chapter of the book. And that chapter happens in 1997, 98, but the show didn't start airing until 2004. But I ended up keeping it because I thought like, I, I tried rewriting it, replacing it with a generic like TV documentary that I made up but I thought it just didn't have the same like oomph to it or the same sharpness um because to catch a predator is so iconic and I feel like a lot of people will recognize that name Chris Hansen and they know that like, the shape of that show so to me that seemed like worth it and it, it tied so well with what was happening in that chapter um, but there were so many like that I ended up keeping just like two or three anachronisms or like, things like that but I think they're subtle enough that it's okay i thought of that with the title too because it's it's a really it's a really good title like the first so when i, I just mentioned to brian that i was reading this his first question was what is the most precious substance on earth and the, the answer yes. i realized is like it's well it's not platinum 
but one of the characters says that it's platinum and then is just is wrong. I googled it. It's antimatter. Um, antimatter. Oh well. Okay. Right. That makes. That makes <laughs> sense. Yeah, I was going to say like pla- plutonium, maybe what ultimate. But yeah, antimatter makes sense. Yeah, that's that sounds about right. Um, but so it's al- almost immediately, almost as soon as it appears as a term, it's debunked. But then it it mm-hmm. kind of lingers as this unspecified value that like you I mean, you could like easily supply some like oh well the the human spirit but like it's it's never there's never a legitimate answer given but it does like as a category or as a like a as an aspiration it kind of hangs over the whole book yeah my plan is every time people ask what the most precious substance is i'm just gonna have a different answer but i read i read a list of like these are the most precious like materials and it included rhino horns diamonds and meth and all of this stuff yeah, on right, platinum yeah. um but so my friend who's also she's like a colleague and teaches at another uh, institution here she taught that title story to her class because it was published in an anthology a couple years ago and she asked her students like what according to the story what do you think the most precious substance on earth is and that's the chapter where it's like the high school band goes on a trip and the group of girls smokes weed for the first time and there's like hijinks um and her students thought the most precious substance was weed (laughs) what like they, they thought that the that that was borne out by the character's actions or they thought that was like the factually presented answer because that's all she told me but like I, I think that's what they think the title referred to at least in that chapter maybe if they'd read the whole book they would have, I thought oh, that man. was such a great answer um, yeah I mean I can tell you what I actually intended it to be because I did want it to yeah. I, I like the like nebulous feeling of yeah. it and um like I, I guess I was thinking of it as the most precious substance is whatever is lost in a coming of age um, and I don't think it's something as simplistic as innocence, but right. maybe like innocence plus confidence and hope and um, like girlhood um, or whatever is lost for Nina, I should say, when she comes of age. But I didn't want to pinpoint it too specifically. The other thing I started to think about as I went through was that what's most precious isn't necessarily what's most important ultimately like the pre- like the preciousness in a way it's like it it can only be lost it doesn't like there yeah. there's what i realized there's one other funny specific thing that i wanted to ask you about so so she gets her the, nina gets her laptop stolen and then she she ultimately she's able to because of cloud updating she's able to see the new material that the person who stole it is is uploading so that she ends up getting sort of these breadcrumbs where she sees photos of this this little girl and these sort of funny little things that, that that are coming from this girl's life getting booted up into the cloud and it's by following the these little pieces of evidence that she ultimately is able to, to track down where it is and the the police go and, and recover it so so nina gets her laptop back and and everything is is sort of resolved for her and this is one moment where there is a nina again is silent she doesn't say anything, but for in this moment, she tells us what she's not saying. But when a character asks her what about the girl, what, wait, what happened to the girl? She's, I don't know, I say. I don't tell him that what will happen to her is what happens to every girl, that her experiences will empty her, that there's a point when a girl becomes a meme, 
a facsimile transmitted, a carbon copy folded and passed along, that she'll end up a weak and staticky version of the original. And, and that's where there, she goes on a, a little bit longer, but that, that's where the, the title of the chapter comes from, facsimile. Uh, and it, it also, I mean, it feels for, for a number of reasons like it's an important, uh, Dave, Dave Smith used to speak somewhat dismissively of wisdom. He was the chair of our old department uh, in grad school. He would talk about wisdom, wisdom moments and poems. He, he would speak derisively of them, but then he would also speak derisively if you didn't include them. It was like, <laughs> basically like they should always be suspect, but they're also important. Like you, yeah. need to, you need to say the truth at some point, just know that you're very vulnerable in that moment when you do. And this feels like one of those moments. Yeah, and this is the like sentence that um, my editor pulled out to put in the like the front of the cover copy to um, the like what happens to her is what happens to every girl, um, and I, I, it's funny because I think I wrote that paragraph when this was just a short story and it has meaning within the like the story, but. Um, like I think it, it takes on more meaning within the scope of Nina's life and I think it is kind of a thesis statement for the book um, and I think it relates back to the title too like this is her commenting on that most precious substance being lost uh, in kind of an indirect way. Yeah it also I mean boy this along with reading in the waiting room about a fucking seven-year-old just just like makes my, my it makes my heart seize up thinking about my my uh my older daughter, who's who's seven. I mean, both my both my daughters, but you know, this this is what happens to every girl. I think, like, ah, yeah, oh. I wondered about that. Actually, it's interesting to me to hear a male perspective on this, and I think especially a father of daughters, because almost everyone who like has a hand in this book, my agent, my editor, copy editor, even the cover designer, like they were all women. Um, and you know, like when I first wrote that first chapter where like the horrible thing happens. Um, I, I don't know how to like explain this without giving away what happens, <laughs> but like the reaction I got from a few male readers just reading that story was that it was like titillating or that they thought it was going to be the beginning of an erotic novel. Even an agent I spoke to early on had that reaction and that really surprised me and was not what I intended at all. And my, my agent, who is wonderful, she was the first person who like, referred to what happens as a rape. Um, like even I hadn't um, described it that way out loud. Um, and that's, I think that's when I knew she was the right agent for the book. Yeah, boy, I mean, I, I definitely get like there's a there some there can be something erotic about like charged boundaries and the the like edges of propriety but like there is some playing around with tone there like she's yeah. chatting with an internet pedophile early in the book and kind of like right testing I forgot about that yeah, yeah yeah she's like she's like I think just beginning to recognize the power of her sexuality but is also a very young fourteen year old <laughs> right 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 I mean it, that's and this feels a little like the beginning. This feels like, oh, this is like a fun, quirky YA novel until it's <laughs> until it's not. Yeah, I'm worried I will lure in the wrong readers with the excerpt that's on the publisher's website, like thinking it's going to be a young adult what's, story. What's the, then, what's the excerpt on the, the I, did, I didn't see that. Oh, it's just the very beginning of the book. Uh, oh. I mean, there is some tension in it. I think it mentions the that she's chatting with a pedophile and it references like a V.C. Andrews novel. So. Well, I, yeah, I'm I'm, uh, I'm excited for people to get to to read this, and it's this is coming out in Canada next month. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Or very, really just in a few, I mean, by the time this, this comes out, it'll be this month uh, in, in August. So that's, yeah. I'm really grateful for you to you know, give me this time to come uh, talk about this and, and other stuff. Oh no, thank you. I was excited to be on your podcast. I love it. <laughs> I think it's super intelligent and witty and fun and hip. That was Shashi Bhatt, author of The Most Precious Substance on Earth, available, as I said, now in Canada and online from McClelland and Stewart. Check out the show notes for a link to pick it up. Uh, this is Slee Ricketts. Thank you, as always, for listening. With any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then.